This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Brash. Welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Brash. When I'm not here on the radio, I am a Senior Managing Director at Kaiser Permanente Ventures. Uh, we're broadcasting live today from the campus of Wharton in San Francisco, uh, right here in downtown. Beautiful and, sorry to say for those on the East Coast, sunny San Francisco today. Um, coming up on today's show, I have two guests I'm really excited about. First, we have Lisa Alderson. Lisa's the co-founder and CEO of Geno Medical. Uh, an exciting, relatively early-stage company that helps patients and doctors better understand genetic testing. Uh, plus, a little later on in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Wade Chambers. Wade is the Chief Technology Officer, CTO of a company called Grand Rounds, another healthcare company. Grand Rounds uses big data to help employers provide better healthcare to their employees. If you're just joining us for the first time, Bay Area Ventures is all about the world of entrepreneurship, startup, and venture capital here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We broadcast live every Monday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. for those on the East Coast, and then the show gets re-aired again throughout the week. Uh, each year, each week, excuse me, throughout the year, we try to bring you guests that represent you know, entrepreneurs, investors, and various thought leaders from here within the Bay Area, you know, folks that represent some of the interesting, innovation, you know, interesting innovation that, that's coming out of this area. We ask them to come on the show and share their insights and opinions on a wide range of issues, trends, developments going on here in the Bay Area technology com uh, community and, and hopefully you know, the communities that you are part of as well. Uh, we do love to hear from you. If you're an entrepreneur in the thick of running a startup business or you've been thinking about striking out on your own or you're just an interested party, uh, definitely get in touch. Um, you can reach us on, you know, via email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Uh, you can also check out our website if you want to learn more about our schedule and the guests we're going to have on in the future. You can find us at businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Again, uh, I'm excited to be joined by my first guest, Lisa Alderson. As I mentioned, Lisa is the co-founder and CEO of Geno Medical. It's a telehealth medical practice that provides expert genetic health care for people. Uh, the company also educates physicians on the rapidly changing field of genetic testing. Uh, Lisa, I'm excited to learn more, talk to you about her experiences. She's a serial entrepreneur who's founded several other companies and joined a number of early ventures. Lisa, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. Really pleased to chat with you this afternoon. Thanks. Um, so you have been a part of a number of different exciting businesses, but, but let's start talking about Genome Medical first, if that's okay. And, and let's just start with helping people understand genetic testing. What, what is genetic testing? And, and then we can get into kind of what the business opportunity was around it that you're pursuing. For sure. So the field of genetics and broader than that genomics has been really rapidly growing over the last, you know, five years and more. And the way I think about it is that genetic testing is one category that's really around germline genetics. So that's the DNA that we inherit from our parents. And we now have much more information to know what is causative of disease. And so genetic testing can be used in a couple of different ways. One, it can help before we're even symptomatic to understand our predisposition to disease. And in the future, that's really where we see healthcare delivery going, is that it becomes much more proactive and preventive rather than, frankly, the way we treat patients today is largely, you know, we wait for individuals to become symptomatic, we observe those symptoms, and then we do our best to try to alleviate those symptoms. The world of genetics and genomics really opens that up so that we can start to understand one's risk, risk factors before they be, have disease, be more preventive and proactive, and also when you become symptomatic, use genetics and genomics to better diagnose so we get a more accurate diagnosis, and it ultimately can help us select the right therapeutic and treatment regimen. So it's really, the way to think about it is it's kind of a core building block towards the future of precision medicine, where that's the promise of how do we get the right drug to the right patient at the right time. And that unlocks a tremendous amount of potential, both for improving patient outcomes and ultimately reducing the cost of care delivery. So we see Genome Medical as kind of addressing a service need within that broader ecosystem. And, let's, and just back on genetic testing in general, because I, you know, I know myself and I'm sure a lot of people 
who are from outside of healthcare have heard of genetic testing. I mean, there's been times where people are having a baby, they get genetic tests done. But what's changed over the last few years? You mentioned there's been a proliferation in, over the last five years. Why? Why is it a bigger deal now or a different opportunity? Certainly. First, I think of genomics as kind of a lifelong journey. So let's just walk through life's journey and when genetic testing might be important. Um, so typically that starts when a couple is think of thinking of having a child. And carrier testing is really relevant and important because it allows us to understand one's risk factors. We all have recessive conditions we carry. And those recessive conditions typically have no impact unless you have a spouse or a partner who similarly has that same recessive condition, in which case it can manifest in a child and be unexpected because perhaps you know this has not been you know transparent in multiple generations so carrier testing is one of the first times where most couples become aware of genetic testing however in the world today most people get carrier screening at the point that they've conceived and that is not the ideal time we'd really want to work to bring that forward into you know people's 20s and before before they're having kids so that you understand this then that allows you to have more actionability from that information once you become pregnant there are a number of different genetic and genomic tests to better understand the health of that unborn child, then eventually the health of your newborn. And so more robust screening for newborns is also what we see in the future. And then finally, if you now think about that individual kind of going through from newborn, there are a number of um, developmental milestones that infants hit or, you know, children hit in their, you know, first, second, third year of life. And in some cases, it's very apparent at birth that there may be a genetic condition, in which case we need to test for that. In other cases, that doesn't manifest until you're starting to hit those developmental milestones. And you might see some delay in those developmental milestones. And a lot of that is actually has a genetic component to it. And so testing uh, at that stage may make, may make sense. Now, as that individual, you know, ages, um, and you enter your 20s and your 30s, now you can start to think about some adult onset diseases, more of cancer and cardiovascular disease. Turns out that about 10% of cancer is hereditary. About 5% of cardiovascular disease is hereditary. And is it's that new? I mean, did, have we always known that? Or have we, have we not? Have we recently learned what genetic you know, where to look to understand if someone has that genetic predisposition? We are learning a lot more about where to look. And yeah. as we peel back the layers, we're seeing, you know, more and more. And so my expectation is that that's probably an underestimated number, yep. simply because our understanding of what's causative disease continues to advance and rapidly expand. And so as we think about cancer and cardiovascular disease, again, now there's tests on the market today that, you know, we can help navigate towards that are tests that have to be ordered by a physician. And so as you think about this genetic testing landscape, the way I think about it is it's sort of segmented, where there's consumer genetics, which is really lightweight, interesting, informative. This is like a 23andMe and, yeah. and Ancestry.com. Um, and all of that does not require a physician to order it. Any, any consumer can purchase that test, receive those results. And that's a great first step. It's uh, particularly around ancestry and even around some genetic uh, risk factors. Um, but then you, you kind of migrate upstream from that into more of the medical grade genetic testing, which has to be ordered by a physician. Mm -hmm. And so that requires knowledge and awareness and adoption from physicians. And this is where we now have the tools and the technology. And in many cases, we even have a standard of care around genetics, but it's not working its way all the way to the patient and the provider. And that's just because there's a lot of barriers when you introduce new technologies in helping to drive the clinical utility, the reimbursement coverage, and ultimately the phys physician adoption for those new technologies. So a lot of this is still so early that we don't yet have that adoption, uh, and it could take you know a whole generation. Yeah. And then let's talk about Genomedical, I mean, the company that you co-founded, and, and help us understand what what need did you see in this larger genetic testing marketplace or opportunity that led you to start this company? Certainly. So I really see that there's such promise from these genomic technologies. And just I personally have had many friends and family members affected by cancer or other inheritable conditions at a very early age. And so it really hits home for me personally in that I see such promise and such huge benefit that I feel like I can't just wait, you know, 
the generation it's going to take to bring this into clinical care today. Let's take cancer genetics as an example. Over the last five years, um, our knowledge of what is causative of disease has so rapidly expanded that the vast majority of you know, typically we were testing in, in cancer genetics only for hereditary breast cancer. And now that's hereditary breast and ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer and pancreatic cancer and uh, melanoma and metastatic prostate cancer. And so it's just expanded so vastly that where I see it heading is, you know, within likely five years, every cancer patient at the point of diagnosis, we get both a genetic test as well as a somatic test to kind of look at the tumor that would help us understand and better characterize the tumor to select the right therapy. And that will vastly improve how we treat cancer patients. And then the step forward from that is, okay, how do we actually get to the people that are at risk yeah, I mean, and make it more preventive so that you either find it when it's at its earliest stage and thus the most treatable or, you know, you understand risk factors and you're in active surveillance and even take some preventive measures. Great. And then again, with genome, which component, I mean, what, what gap are you filling with, with what you're all doing in the company? So the way I like to think about it is that there's this vast array of new technology coming. And from an industry pr perspective, actually, a lot of investment has gone into the tools and the technology. So this is you know, genetic testing, as well as somatic testing, as well as liquid biopsy and microbiome. And so there's kind of this whole tsunami of new genomic technologies coming. And so the really rate limiting factor on bringing that into adoption by the medical uh, industry today is largely having a sufficient number of clinicians who are knowledgeable and trained in the field. So Genome Medical is working to overcome three primary barriers. First, which patients would most benefit from genomic testing? Second, which tests to order? And that's actually quite complex because there are over 600 labs providing about 60,000 genomic tests today. And we're asking, you know, we're expecting our doctors with everything else they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis to keep up. To, to keep speed up with this, right? What, what's been developed, what, you know, what is best for each individual patient. And I got to imagine that is almost impossible for it, your average clinician. Even if you're an expert in the field, that's almost impossible at this stage, let alone if you're a primary care doctor or an OB-GYN or an internist or a cardiologist, neurologist, oncologist. So this ultimately touches all areas of medicine. And that brings us to kind of the third barrier, which is how do when you get the test results back, how do you interpret that? How do you interpret that in the context of the individual's personal and family health history? And how do you now guide ongoing clinical recommendations based on that? And that's what takes the most expertise. And so when we think about the number of experts in the country, there are really only 2,000 medical geneticists in the entire United States. There are about 4,000 genetic counselors in the entire United States. So we have this specialty area of medicine that is one of the smallest specialty areas of medicine. Yep with only 6,000 experts effectively. For all 300 and something million people we have in the US? Exactly, yeah. for, for 330 million people. So if you think about that, and if, if we're marching towards a world where more and more individuals get genetic testing and sequencing more broadly than that, like you can do the math on that and say, okay, well, with 6,000 experts and 330 million people, it's going to take us you know, more than 70 years to just get through the current population at the way in which we deliver those services today. And of course, in that 70-year period, our population is going to double again. And so you can't keep up with it. And so what Genome Medical is really doing is trying to drive innovation in how we deliver those services. And so we're really tackling this from bringing the strongest clinical experts expertise to bear, but also phenomenal technology and product expertise to drive kind of technology enablement solutions that enable us to deliver genetic services with higher efficiency and ultimately higher efficacy than has been done before. Great. And uh, yeah, I look forward to digging in a little bit more on Genome Medical. And again, for those just joining, this is Sam Brash, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures. And I'm speaking with Lisa Alderson. Lisa is the CEO and co-founder of Genome Medical. If you have a question or a comment for Lisa, our phone lines are open. You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. Uh, that is 1-844-942-7866. You know, and before we jump back and talk about genome in a little more, genome medical in a little more detail, yeah, 
I'm very curious about the process of starting a company in general. I mean, you, you've been around startups. You've been involved in a lot of startups. But for a lot of people probably listening out there who don't live inside the Bay Area, it feels like you know, it's natural to start companies. Can you walk us through the process? What is it, what's it like? I mean, how do you get to the point where you say, I've got an idea and I'm going to make a company out of this? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So for context, uh, this is actually the eighth company that I've either founded or been a part of the early stage startup for. And the first one, I was actually just 19 and started with my undergraduate um, university. And there's something that I've found in that process that for me is super energizing and exciting, but I think it really starts with the identification of a real problem and need. And so one of the things I find is that a lot of entrepreneurs actually have an element of empathy because they're looking for those opportunities for, you know, kind of identifying true problems. And that truly was the case, you know, in this situation. It was very much of, like, I feel compelled to go solve this problem. Um, But I, I see that as an important characteristic. And, you know, that process is how do you very quickly get a lot of market insight and finding to try to identify and validate whether or not the problem you think you've figured out is truly a problem. Yeah. I mean, that, and is that's there... got to be the challenges. You've got an idea, you, under, you think there's a problem out there, but how do, you, how do you get to the point where you're comfortable enough that the problem's real and your approach to it is interesting enough that it merits building a company? So I, I think of that as how do I get to as many people as I can talk to about this as a possible opportunity as quickly as possible? So in the, in the case of founding Genome Medical, I mean, it was probably a hundred conversations, yep. hospitals, health systems, physicians, oncologists, cardiologists, neurologists, primary care docs, right? And partly I actually was operating in the field. So I had some good working knowledge coming to bear on that problem in that situation. But it was still kind of further market research and validation. And so just you start to really recognize patterns and you start to build knowledge of you know, how would I think about this coming together as a business and how would we, you know, build kind of the business model and how do we monetize and who has a willingness to pay and what pain are we solving and all of that. Um, And I think that's a really exciting phase, but it takes a very kind of rapid fire cycle where you're trying to get that market knowledge and that intelligence and then that's shaping a bit of the product and the go-to-market strategy. And, you know, as an early stage company, um, you know, I, I think of it as, you know, it's not a strategy to do everything. <laughs> you can only have a strategy that sort of has a very clear product market fit focus and a very focused path to growth, you know, for your go to market. And so that's the hardest part, I think, is really kind of refining and then picking and placing some of those bets and starting to build traction in those channels. And I'm curious, as you're going out there, either for Genome Medical or, or any of the, the other businesses you helped start, I got to imagine that when you're out there talking to experts representing different aspects of what you're trying to do, you're getting some people pushing back, saying this, this isn't the right idea or do things differently. How do you find that balance of evolving your idea and at the same time maintaining the elements of it that you think are right and pushing forward? Well, I guess the way I would sort of describe it, I think as a founder and you know, certainly as a CEO, you need to be pretty clear in your vision and your strategy. And that vision and that strategy is a big part of what's going to help recruit talent. And I think of the strategy in my mind as often, you know, building block number one is just cementing great talent because I think great talent begets other great talent. And so having a really strong core team you know, buying into the vision, and then that helps to sort of solidify that vision and provide opportunities for, um, you know, the next phase of that business building. And so I think getting that formula of your core team correct is a really important part of building a business. It's also one of the hardest parts of building a business because you can look at, you know, kind of people on paper and say, wow, they bring all the expertise I need. And yet there's sort of this magic formula that's more cultural, that's a little bit more, you know, shared kind of vision, shared um, uh, just kind of values, and, you know, and, and that starts to get a little bit more intangible. And so I always feel like you can see it when you have that winning formula and the team that's just really efficient and working together. But it, I think it is one of the hardest parts of building a business is how do you form that shape that get that right? Yeah. And it really starts with a strong anchor on your vision. I got to imagine, you know, you've, you've done, you've now done this eight times, your ability to 
figure out when you have that right, when you when you have the right people together behind the idea has evolved over time. I mean, it, it, maybe I'm saying the obvious, but has it gotten easier over time? Is the pattern easier to pick up on or? For sure. I mean, I think they're, they're kind of in anything, they're sort of pattern recognition and you start to, you know, you're kind of building muscle memory. And that's one of the things I think is having done this multiple times, like, you know, if, if you're, if you're a sprinter or you're a marathoner or you're, you know, a baseball player, like there's kind of this muscle memory that you just develop that creates um, increased comfort and ease. And so I think there are things that um, because of virtue of having done them over and over again, I actually find to be quite uh, straightforward, yeah. right? Whereas they might be quite daunting for a first time um, founder or first time CEO. And, but as I, as I noted, I think that getting the right team, like that's more than just the muscle memory because it is such a unique formula. It's kind of like, you know, the cook building the right recipe and they still taste, right? Like even though they have the recipe, they're kind of validating, like, is this right? So it's one of those where I feel like it's kind of an iterative process and you're building as you go and you're first really trying to solidify your core leadership team and then you're really kind of building around that. But every every single person has such a huge contributing factor to the culture of an early stage company that I think it's really astute and important to just take a lot of time in the recruiting, hiring and, you know, finding that right talent is, is just so critical and you know I asked this question knowing that anyone outside the Bay Area will scoff at us but um <laughs> you know we sit here in the Bay Area and they're you know every other person is starting a company it feels like and and someone like yourself has kind of based your career here and built company after company you know, what is it that exists here in the Bay Area that leads to more startups coming together and, and pros and cons. I mean, there's clearly going to be some negatives to the Bay Area community's impact on startup culture, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, and you've started companies outside the Bay Area and here. I'm interested in yeah. your take on what goes on here that's good and bad for getting companies started and successful. So I think it kind of comes down, you know, I, Michael Porter was a professor of mine at business school, and he really talks about this clustering concept. And, you know, if you get clusters, it sort of feeds on itself. And so I feel like in the Bay Area, we do have this clustering around the, the startup and entrepreneurial world. And by that, I mean that you've got the great talent, you've got engineers, you've got product managers, you know, you've, you've kind of got this, this acumen that's been honed by people moving from company to company and uh, just understanding what it takes to bring companies together. And so there's sort of infrastructure that's set up by virtue of, of the, the footprint that we have that really becomes um, re self-reinforcing, right? It allows you to attract more talent because the talent's already here. It allows you to attract the entrepreneurs because they know the engineering talent's here. I will say this, it is extremely hard to hire engineering talent in the Bay Area and has been for, you know, easily five, six years. And so it's a very competitive field. And, uh, you know, it bodes well for, you know, the new, uh, newly minted uh, undergrad engineers that are graduating uh, because their salaries are quite high in the Bay Area. <laughs> They but, also have to pay $4,500 a month for rent with a one-bedroom studio. Very true. It is a very high cost of living place. Um, but I think there, there's, there's sort of this trend line that because you're in that same ecosystem, and I see this for Geno Medical, like there are many companies, and obviously we work with many companies outside of the Bay Area as well, but there's many companies that kind of have a footprint and you know are here. And so that just helps facilitate easier access. I think it allows you to drive kind of faster adoption it allows you to get kind of networked into the ecosystem you know and so there's those would be two areas that i would highlight however i feel like there are these burgeoning areas all around the country including you know boston and including new york including austin you know that are similarly building kind of these tech hubs and so i don't think there's anything that's unique about san francisco i think it's more of just further along on that momentum cycle and you do need to kind of get to this critical mass to help it yeah. sort of foster you need the capital you need the entrepreneurs you need the you know you, you need the developers like you need it to all come together and let's talk about what your company looks like now so you started this company how long ago uh, a little over a year and a half ago okay. yeah so in a year and a half you know how many people what's where can you get to in a year and a half sure. with a new company 
So, uh, so first of all, one of the challenges we have focused on is just simply setting ourselves up as a nationwide medical practice. And so a lot of 2017 for us was building a lot of that infrastructure. We now have 40 clinicians. These are medical geneticists, genetic counselors, some primary care doctors. We also have care coordinators. We deliver a full care to patients all around the country. So we can now see patients in all 50 states for genetic counseling. The legal, the regulatory, I won't even go into, but that was a big, big not, lift. Not, not, to be, not to be taken lightly. I'm not imagining. to be taken lightly. And so that, I mean, one, that creates some barriers to entry. Uh, but two, we thought that was really important because genetics ties us together with our family members. And so if we see a patient and that individual now has a pertinent finding, we want to be able to get that to, you know, to now testing for aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, parents, godparents, whatever, grandparents, sorry. And that through that process, um, as our national footprint, we can make that super turnkey and easy and just remove all of those logistic hassles. Whereas in the process today, you know, it's much more cumbersome. Um, so in terms of our, our national footprint, that's been big. In terms of uh, where we are on, um, you know, kind of broader growth, we now have multiple programs. We work with employer organizations to be able to provide access to proactive health uh, testing so as the well. Employers as, are off- so it's a, it's a benefit they're offering up to their employees? That, that, it's a benefit that-, that they offer either fully subsidized or partially subsidized. Um, we also have programs for individuals directly. So anybody listening here can go to Genome Medical, and we have, you know, for just $179, a introductory session that allows us to guide you to the right test. Testing plans start at 200 bucks and go up to about $1,000. But all in, you're talking about an investment about $350 to get a cancer screen or a cardiovascular screen. You know, it's about $1,400 for whole genome sequencing, which means that we're you know, in most cases, sequencing like 1,800 genes. And yeah. so that's truly not whole genome, but it, it but it's close Good to that. It's very expanded. Us, and it covers everything that we know is uh, indicative of disease today. So, so we now are, what we're seeing in the market, and truly over even just the last couple of years, is these price points have come down dramatically. So the way I would reference this is, you know, roughly a little over 20 years ago when we were sequencing the first human genome. I mean, it took multiple companies many years and billions of dollars to sequence a genome. You know, now we're in the the field where it's roughly about, a, you know, $1,000, $1,500 to have a genome sequenced. And we now have much more clinical actionability from that. Yeah. In fact, uh, the American College of Medical Genetics has issued kind of recommendations of about 59 genes that are very medically actionable. So if you observed any mutations in these genes, those should be reported to the patient, even if it's an incidental finding. It's kind of like, you know, if you go into the doctor to get a chest x-ray because you think you might have pneumonia and suddenly there's a tumor or a potential tumor, they're going to tell you about that, even though you didn't go in with that. That's sort of an incidental finding. Similarly, if you're, you know, through research or through any other means getting some form of testing, the idea is, well, these are so significant that we have an obligation to inform and provide that knowledge. And so that's one of the areas we'll support as well. So I guess I would just say we've, we've, we've rapidly progressed our infrastructure. We've expanded our na- nationwide footprint. We now see patients in all 50 states. We have, you know, 40 clinicians on board, and we're working through employer organizations, direct-to-consumer, and um, physician referrals. So we support physicians who are bringing genetics and genomics into their practice setting, and we help guide them in terms of, you know, which patients would benefit, what tests to order, and how to use the resulting information for the benefit of patient care. Great. Thanks. Uh, Again, I'm your co-host, Sam Brash. Uh, Stay with me after this break as I continue the conversation with my guests this hour, co-founder and CEO of Genome Medical, Lisa Alderson. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Bay Area Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's business radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, again, I'm your host, Sam Brash. Uh, when I'm not here on the radio with you all, I'm a Senior Managing Director at Kaiser Permanente Ventures. My guest this hour is Lisa Alderson. Lisa is the CEO and co-founder of Genome Medical. Uh, before the break, Lisa, we were talking a little bit about both what led you to start Genome Medical and, and what you were doing 
in the genetic testing space to, to meet some very important unmet needs there. Um, if any of you out there have questions for us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, again, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And again, we're happy to talk about genetic testing and, and the nuances of this space, but also, you know, as we've been discussing, Lisa's now on her eighth startup. And so if you've got questions about getting companies started in general and her experiences, we'd be happy to ask her to try and answer them. Speaking of your eight companies, I mean, you have had an amazingly diverse set of experiences. You know, sometimes in our field, we, we see people that, you know, they were a geneticist from day one, and everything yep. they've done is, you know, genetics, 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 or, you know, software engineer, software engineer, software engineer. Um, you haven't had that kind of career. <laughs> I have not. You started I think in I've college? got one of those CVs that people look at, and they're like, huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So let's go with interesting. So you, you started your career, and, and even back in college, you focused on journalism, correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say the themes, just to keep it super high level, I'm happy to, to, to go deeper, but I started really in, you know, journalism, which led to media and entertainment and kind of consumer, and uh, I would say culminated in my work at the Walt Disney Company, where I led strategy was part of the strategy team for ABC and ESPN and really focused on some of the digital, kind of digital, new digital media. Um, but then I moved more into technology and kind of hardcore technology. And it started with actually trying to solve the last mile access problem for, uh, for entertainment and media, which is really high speed broadband to the home, right? But then that kind of worked me into even, you know, other tech companies and, and, and deeper tech. Um, and then kind of serendipitously, I got connected uh, through Kleiner Perkins to the life sciences field. And, and, and um, for those out there who don't know, Kleiner Perkins is a large, prominent venture capital firm here in the Bay Area. And, and, and so I then connected to Randy Scott, who at the time was founding Genome, uh, sorry, Genomic Health. And he and I now uh, you know, have known each other for a couple of decades. And between Genomic Health and then Invitae and now Genome Medical, it's really the third company that I've had the pleasure of working with Randy on. Um, and he is just such a true visionary in the field and is so dedicated to the patient that I think for me it was a real eye-opening experience to have come from you know, kind of media and entertainment and then consumer and, you know, technology into this field of life sciences where, you know, it was fraught with much more challenges as an entrepreneur because there's a, you know, legal and regulatory framework that's much more acute than, you know, in e-commerce, let's yep. say, right? Yeah, no, we, <laughs> and, we, we see a lot of entrepreneurs, because I work in the healthcare field, we see a lot of entrepreneurs that come to healthcare from outside of healthcare who find all the regulatory challenges and burdens and just the nature of the healthcare system a real challenge for building a business, uh, and they get deterred. It doesn't sound like that was your reaction. That that definitely wasn't. And for me, I mean, I think partly I always see it as also kind of my life milestone. So the entertainment and media was really in my 20s, which, you know, how fun to be at Disney and get to go to the ESPYs and, you know, all those fun yeah. things, right? And then, you know, and then in my 30s and kind of like harder core tech, and, you know, now I'm in my 40s. And truly, part of that has been my journey as an entrepreneur where, you work hard as you know a founder. You work hard as a CEO of a company. You work really hard. And to me, it kind of had this turning point somewhere probably in my 30s where the idea of like, you know, if I'm going to be working this hard, I want to do so in ways that feel really meaningful and really uh, kind of impactful. It's almost a little bit of that like – you know, how, how do you give back <laughs> to yeah. the world? And there's something that's just so rewarding, you know, in life sciences and even broader than that, or, you know, more, I guess, maybe more specific, I should say, into health services and the delivery of healthcare, that you really feel like you're touching lives, you're saving lives, you're profoundly impacting individuals. And though entertainment media is fun, it never has that kind of profound impact. Yep. And so for me, it's just been kind of a progression. And now I've been in genetics and genomics for, you know, for long enough time that it, it, this is my passion. This is my industry. This is my focal point. Um, but I will say having the background on media, entertainment, consumer, and tech actually serves me really well in the digital health company that I'm building. And uh, because we want to build this exceptional consumer experience. And healthcare is typically not an exceptional yeah. I mean, consumer that, that experience. Is, that is always the gripe with healthcare, which is we don't think about the consumer as a person so right. much. 
That's exactly it. And, and so that's interesting. So you, you, know, you grew up in industries where the consumer was everything. That's exactly it. And so every, like, it's in my DNA. I think of this as how do, how do we drive the most exceptional, elegant experience for a patient? And that patient could be a consumer who is just genetically, you know, interested and wants to see if there's anything that could inform their health to live a longer, healthier life. Um, or that could be, you know, the symptomatic individual who has something really serious. And so, you know, you want both of those to be just exceptional experiences. And one is fraught with a little more angst and the other is, you know, elegant and simple. And so we're really trying to build um, that customer engagement and that customer experience. And a lot of it I think of is, you know, how do we meet that individual at their need and how do we adapt to what their need is? As opposed to in healthcare, it's typically, you know, there is a standard of care and we apply this to everybody. And if you're kind of in the middle of the, you know, standardized bell curve, like that probably works pretty well for you. But across healthcare in general, that means that we are roughly over treating half the population and we are roughly under treating yeah. half the population. We just don't know which half yeah. is which. And why is that? I mean, and maybe this is, you know, a tough question to answer in a 20 minute segment, but you know, why do you think healthcare as an industry hasn't been more consumer oriented? I mean, it's all about trying to make people better, but but we don't think about the individual as much as as Disney does, probably. Totally. Well, actually, I have a I I, I have thought about this, and I think it's um, partly because we are trying to build standardization into the process to ultimately lead to improved outcomes. Because if you standardize on one approach, you can then monitor it, measure it, and kind of like you know adjust it, right? Um, what I think will happen, and particularly with the evolution of genetics and genomics, what's really promising about that is that we can actually, so, so as brief background, we all have a genome. It's one of the number one factors that affects our health. We've just never had the medicine, the science, and the technology to come together to be able to analyze that. So I described to you know my friends and family outside of the industry, like you can imagine there was a day where we didn't know how to do a blood draw. We didn't have a microscope to analyze that. We didn't know how to use that for the benefit of patient care. If you're a clinician, that would seem pretty arcane practice of medicine, but certainly there was a day where that was true. Yep. And I feel wholeheartedly we'll look back on today, maybe 10 years from now, maybe 20 years from now, maybe it'll take three, 30 years from now, but we'll look back and say, how did we ever prescribe drugs to people and not look at their molecular makeup. Yeah. I mean, it was like an art, right? And and so as we reveal, you know, and there's only about 130 drugs on the market today that are in this precision medicine category where there's a known biomarker that will demonstrate efficacy. And so, but that's going to evolve over time. And so as we get to that, that's really where we go with precision medicine. So instead of having this one standard of care for everybody, what we will first do is really stratify the patient population and say, okay, well, this is a you know patient population that's at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And this is a patient population that's at high risk for cancer. Instead of managing them according to standard, we're now going to have a low you know, low risk standard, a moderate risk standard, and a high risk standard. And then eventually that starts to stratify even further and you have, you know, a, a, a standard for this particular patient, this one individual. And so it's kind of an interesting dynamic that um, actually really pushes on the way we've typically thought about healthcare delivery because we try to make the same kind of care roughly available to everybody under one standard. Yep. And so changing that is going to be kind of a dramatic change in how we think about delivery health, yeah. delivering healthcare. But, but pretty exciting too. Because, also very exciting. Because if we can do it, it means we're delivering the right care to the right patient, the right time, the right way. So. And you think about the cost of healthcare. I mean, everybody across, I mean, not just in the United States, but across the globe, like the cost of healthcare is really rising. And so this is one of the biggest promises I see for actually changing the cost curve of delivering medicine. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, even just on staying on the drug theme for a moment and therapeutics is that, you know, we have a lot of people that are on very high cost drugs that probably have no efficacy for them and worse may have adverse you know, side effects. And so if we could get to that promised land where we know which drugs are going to have highest efficacy and we put the patient on it immediately rather than this kind of trial and error of let's see how this works and then now let's see how that works. One, it would be a better outcome for the patient, but two, you would actually save a lot of money for our healthcare delivery. And yeah. so that's part of why I see this field as one of the most exciting advancements in healthcare 
period. Yep. No, Across the is. board. It is exciting. Again, for those of you who joined us a little late, this is Sam Brash, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures. And I'm speaking with Lisa Alderson. Lisa is the CEO and co-founder of Geno Medical. You know, so Lisa, we were talking a little bit about your career path, you know, early days as a journalist, Disney, then technology leader, and, and you've been in this genomic space for 10 plus years, it sounds like, maybe, yeah. maybe even longer. And so by now, you, you know, you're clearly one of the world's experts in understanding this field, but, but you don't come from a scientific background. You, know, you, you didn't study, you're not a PhD scientist, and you weren't a software engineer, but you were managing technology companies. Help us understand what that's like, and how do you come to be a, you know, as strong a leader as you've been in areas where maybe you didn't have the technical expertise coming into the opportunity? Yes. So I think that's a really, really astute question. And it's one of these things that as a, you know, as a, as a leader, you want some degree of domain expertise. And when I first came into the field, I felt like I was lacking in that. And so the ways in which I operated were much more around kind of your standard business processes and business development. Having now been in this field across three companies, uh, you know, and in, in spanning more than a decade, it, I do now feel like I've built some of that expertise. I think of it as how do I surround myself with the right knowledge experts, like the scientists, like the, you know, the medical geneticists, uh, because I don't have the depth of that expertise. But I've, I've, I've worked in the field long enough that I feel uh, you know, pretty knowledgeable in the domain, at least you know, at base level knowledge. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I think it's just about how do you find those compliments? And, you know, in our case, and, you know, medical, I have two co-founders, um, Dr. Randy Scott, who is a PhD scientist and, you know, has, has really been in the field and really is, has just this uncanny ability to sort of see where it's headed. Um, uh, and then Dr. Robert Green, who's the leading medical geneticist and physician scientist at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And so he, he brings the clinical side, Randy brings the science side, and I'm on the business. And so it really is kind of a nice complementary team in our co-founders. And then as we've continued to build that team, obviously, we're looking for that breadth of expertise across the board. Yeah. No, it is. And, and I asked the question as someone who invests in healthcare companies and is not a scientist, a clinician, or right. a technologist. Right. So I understand. Uh, it's just very impressive to see you be so successful in leading these companies. Um, and, and also not all in one field. I mean, you've done in the technology field as well. Correct. Was it any harder or easier to lead companies in technology versus healthcare if you don't have the domain expertise to start? Well, so what's interesting is, it, particularly in, in the case of Genome Medical, I feel like we have two core anchors and pillars in our company. One is depth of expertise in clinical, and the second is really building that depth of, depth of expertise in technology and you know in product. And one of the things that's challenging, particularly having navigated from one to the other, is that they are different in how they operate. And so trying to bring together clinicians and bioinformaticians and software engineers and, you know, it, that kind of will be able to speak the same language and build towards a common goal is a non-trivial task. Yep. And so I guess I would say it's a little easier to hang up a shingle in, in, the, in the tech world because the barriers to entry are lower, the you know, there's less of a legal and regulatory hurdle. Um, but I don't think it's any easier to build the significant successful company. Yeah. And so every field has its challenges and different barriers. Um, and I think in healthcare, in order, you know, we have, we see a lot of people come from tech into healthcare. And I think that is great to drive some of the innovation. But I think the best winning formula for success is that you have some of the clinical domain and expertise along with that technology domain and expertise, because that's what's going to drive innovation. And we know that if we deliver healthcare the way we've always delivered healthcare, that is not going to change this cost curve <laughs> that yeah. I've talked about, right? That is not going to help us innovate in service delivery. So we need that innovation, but we also need the, the depth of clinical care and knowledge. So it really takes both. You know, another question, Lisa, is I looked at your, your vast experiences and, and you've, you've, you know, run companies from early on, but you know, the last couple of companies, you were kind of one of the most senior executives, um, but this time you're CEO of a, of a big and growing business. How different is it being the CEO versus being, 
you know, one of the senior executives on the team. Does it does it feel lonelier? Does it feel different? Yeah, that's a good question. This is not my first time as CEO, so I do have background in having been CEO before. But I do think there there is this aspect of you feel like you carry a little bit more of the weight, yep. perhaps, potentially, because ultimately that strategic direction sort of sits most with you. Now, hopefully you've got, you know, a great board that can be a strong sounding board. Hopefully you've got great leaders that can help, you know, bring their expertise to bear. And I tend to have a fairly uh, kind of open and generally collaborative management style that really leans on a lot of my, you know, the, the team and the experts in the team. But I do think there is sort of this this weight, um, particularly when you're in the earlier stage and kind of building traction, because you want to be able to very quickly demonstrate that market growth and that product market fit. Um, and so that means you're placing some bets and you really want those bets to play out, right? And you yep. want to see that 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 growth and that traction. And so ultimately, I feel like there, you know, there's a big responsibility. Um, but that's true, you know, in senior leadership roles as well. Um, you know, it, it just, I think it's part of um, how do you solidify clarity of vision? How do you solidify clarity of goals and objectives? How do you rally around some key metrics? And then hopefully, how do you have the team that can help to really, you know, drive the, the, the tactical plans and the operating plans to help achieve that? Yeah, I've, just, I've heard from some CEOs who said, you know, they felt a little bit of a burden as the CEO, feeling like they were expected to know the final answer. And I'm right. curious if, if that is the case. And, and how do you, you know, how do you find that right balance of getting the feedback from your board, from your team, and others, but then also ultimately feeling like you can own the final, you know, a decision on something. Well, it's a really good question. I mean, as a general philosophy, I feel like um, I'm all, I always have kind of a bias towards action, and so. Uh, the way I think about it is that it's a lot easier if you're headed in one direction to kind of tack or pivot and sort of move slightly, whereas I think the the most dangerous situation is when you end up in inertia because you're gridlocked, right? Like they're, you know, the for the for example, absent of strategy or you've got different people kind of you know coming from a different direction, then that's harder. And so I look at it as. Your, your best decision is in, you know, kind of making the best decision you can at the time, which is always going to be with some uncertainty, like, you know, particularly in startup world, you're not going to have perfect information. And so I think part of that is actually just the comfort and the confidence in feeling like you can make that ultimate call, but then also recognizing that it's not a call that is, you know, unchangeable, right? It's it's just, it's a direction. And then how do you move, like if you're, you've got your anchor on your North Star and you actually end up, you know, needing to navigate a little bit one way or the other. That's a lot easier because you've always already got that strong forward momentum. So, so I think that helps me in not feeling like there's only one answer yeah. and it's a right answer or a wrong answer. And boy, I better make the right answer. It's more of, it's it's more of this is a journey, and I have a really strong anchor of where I want to go and how do we help navigate it. And that is not going to be a straight line, right? I can just assure yep. it. <laughs> It's not going to happen that way. And so Everybody's as, on board with as you. As long as you've got some flexibility and adaptability and you can really kind of take those insights and iterate on those quickly, then I think you're, you know, you're on a good path. Yeah, and a few minutes ago, you articulated a vision of, of where we are hopefully headed as a healthcare system, where it may take us, as you mentioned, five years. It may take us 30 years. But at some point, we'll look back for this vision and, and understand that, you know, understanding someone's genetic makeup as we're thinking about how to diagnose diseases, but more importantly, how to treat that person um, will be what we do. Going back to Genome Medical and the company you're building, looking five years ahead from now or 10 years, you know, where do you want the business to be? How will you know and how will you feel, you know, what will make you feel successful with what this business has achieved? So I feel like Genome Medical is delivering the future of healthcare today. Yeah. And I see that we now have a lot of genomic technologies that not only have clinical utility, they have medical management guidelines around them, they even have reimbursement coverage, and yet they're not making their way into physicians and patients. And so Genome Medical, for me, the defining moment of success will be if we feel like we've driven to this new accelerated you know, healthcare system that uses genetic testing and genomic technologies as sort of a cornerstone, and that that occurs, that future world occurs 
let's say, a decade before it otherwise would have, because we've built some of the infrastructure to be able to, one, see patients directly. So, you know, anybody who feels like they may have a situation that would benefit can come directly to Genome Medical. But more importantly, we will work with the hospitals and the health systems and the provider groups to bring some of the training, the education, the support systems, our clinical expertise. There are over 7,000 Mendelian inherited disorders. So even those 2,000 geneticists have a lot of subspecialties. And so, you know, by virtue of who we have on staff, who we have as part of our network, there's a real opportunity to navigate the right patient to the right clinician. And that solves part of the problem barrier. If you think about, um, for example, children with developmental delay, they can bounce around in our healthcare system sometimes for five, six, seven years before they actually get to a diagnosis. And we now have the technology to do much more of that testing all together, all at once, all up front. And even if we don't end up with a definitive answer, at least we will have exhausted the range of options for for investigation. And so it vastly accelerates. I mean, the difference for a parent is, you know, spending years and years going through testing with no answers, and that just gets frustrating. Either, you know, the parent loses, you know, interest in pursuing it further, or the healthcare system stops paying, and that's just not a good solution. So if you can find that and really get to these individuals, get them to the right knowledgeable experts, do the right testing, and within, you know, weeks have have an answer, uh, either a definitive diagnosis and or just we don't know, but we have looked at everything we can look at today, and let's keep tracking on, you know, this variant of uncertain significance or what it might be. So that, that just, to me, that... Um, it's just so powerful. I, I want I want that future world to happen. What? Well, I'm I'm curious, and, and this again might be fodder for a longer conversation. But what what are the biggest barriers you need to overcome? Like, what's keeping us, keeping Genome Medical from from being able to be that solution today? Or is it just a matter of time? Is it a matter of awareness? I think it's a matter of time. I mean, that is very much what we are tackling and what we're blocking. And I feel with a high degree of confidence that we can help contribute to that more appropriate adoption of genomic technologies faster. So part of it is truly, so there, there's a stat that shows that typically it takes 17 years for a test from the time it has clinical utility well established to actually make its way into patient care. And it takes 17 years because you go through not only the clinical utility, but then you have, you know, professional societies establish medical management guidelines. You then get payers to establish coverage, and then you ultimately, you know, bring it into the patient uh, care. And so we see ourselves really applying that added support around the physicians to bring it to patient care and bring it today. Fantastic. I think, you know, I know for for myself, but also for people listening, I, I think getting to that point and as a healthcare system um, is pretty exciting. Again, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, can you tell folks if they want to learn more about Genome Medical, where, where can they go and what does it mean for individuals? Definitely. Please go to www.genomemedical.com. We can support you directly. We can also work with other treating physicians to provide any guidance and support that may be needed. And, and, and from what you described and what I understand, there's information on there that can just help people better understand what this means. I mean, like, um, I'm, I would hope our hour here educated everyone, but if they just want to know more about genetic testing to get started, it sounds like your website's a great place to start. Certainly. And I would say price points are actually pretty low and can be paid for by insurance. So uh, definitely check us out. Great. Again, Lisa, really appreciate you. you taking the time and joining us. Uh, for those listening, uh, please stay on after the break. We're very excited. Uh, we're going to have Wade Chambers. As I mentioned before, Wade is a veteran of Yahoo and Twitter, um, and now he is chief technology officer of another very innovative, exciting healthcare company called Grand Rounds. Um, We'll take a short break here. Again, this is Sam Brash, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 